The Quest listeners and viewers, I'm so excited to have Jessica Fiakovich coming on an upcoming episode of DealQuest. Um, she is a phenomenal business broker and has had her own experience, uh, uh, you know, doing her own deals. So, Jessica, talk to us a little bit about, you know, what we're going to cover on your episode of DealQuest. Yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, the business brokerage industry and investment banking. We're going to talk a little bit too about what's going on in the marketplace, right? What are we seeing? And then also, how can you be successful in deals, at, whether you're a seller or you're a buyer? And I think I'm going to hopefully get you to share a little bit about your own deal experience that led you to be in a business broker. Yes. Will you yes. that? Yeah, we could definitely cover that. We'll cover my, my deal journey, the sale of my first business, um, and then how I've grown my own business through acquisition as well. And um, let me, let me just, I'll tease a little preview here. Like, like I, I, I have a client who was in the same industry and um, I thought he was smart. And I think Jessica is very, very smart, but I question their decision to sell the business in this particular industry. <laughs> That's <laughs> yes. a joke. I'm a wine guy. It was in the wine industry. It's a joke. <laughs> yeah, it's a good lifestyle. It's hard to abandon. But yes, we'll talk about my my journey in the wine industry as well and, and why I also made that crazy decision to sell. <laughs> awesome. All right. So check out Jessica's episode coming up real soon. Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the DealQuest podcast. Let's get started. I am so excited to welcome Jessica Fiakovich. Who is a first? Who was a first-time entrepreneur at the age of 25, and since then has established, developed, and sold multiple small businesses in a number of different industries. So she's done that as an entrepreneur. Now, in the last eight years, she has uh, been building a business brokerage firm from her two-person team to one of the top firms in the country. Under her leadership, the office has become the number one Transworld Business Advisors franchise location in the world for the last five years. So you'll hear more about um, Transworld Business Advisors. It's, it's, it's um, well, why don't we just say that? You'll hear more about them yeah. later. Um, uh, they've made the Inc. 5000 list for the last three years and been recognized uh, by the Financial Times, the Denver Business Journal, and others. Jessica is also the founder of Exit Factor, um, which teaches business owners how to buy and sell businesses for the most profit in the least amount of time. That sounds pretty good, right? Uh, as an entrepreneur, Jessica is passionate about small business, driving our economy. We definitely have that in common. Um, because of this, she's committed to educating and supporting entrepreneurs and the small business community. She's active in entrepreneurs' organization, near and dear to my heart, as, as listeners know, uh, currently serving as the president of the Colorado chapter. Um, and having been New York president for two years, I my uh, condolences and uh, heartfelt uh, <laughs> and, uh, all kidding aside, that's a, it's a tough but unbelievably rewarding job. She's the founder of the Small Business uh, Coalition, a nonprofit giving small business support uh, and a voice 
Jessica's originally a Jersey girl who lives, lives in Colorado now with her husband and two dogs, Moose and Sailor. I'm going to ask you what kind of dogs they are. When she's not uh, working, uh, you will find her either enjoying the outdoors or, like any good New Jersey girl, attending a Bruce Springsteen concert. Um, so this is not usually my opening question, but since uh, in the pre uh, in the pre show uh, we we talked a little bit about my dog and trying to figure out whether uh, whether Macy's going to try to make an a, you know an entrance. Uh, tell me about your uh, what are your two dogs? <laughs> yeah, so they're both rescues. Um, Sailor is our twelve and a half year old. He is a a Shiba Inu Canaan dog mix, um, which nobody's like really familiar with, but he kind of looks like a black lab with a curly tail. Okay. Um, and then we adopted Moose in 2019. He's two years old. He is a Beagle Staffy mix. Um, and he's got like at least 20 times the amount of energy that Sailor ever has. So <laughs> I joke around all the time. I was like, Sailor wasn't a real dog. And then we got Moose and we're like, oh, this is what people talk That's about it. with puppy training. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, uh, not that I talk about it a lot, but, but some of the listeners may and viewers may know my dog, Macy. I, I'm actually tempted to do like, it'd be very cool to do a podcast with, with like, uh, people and the, the dogs, you know, yeah. um, pro- probably get way more downloads, you know, than the, oh, of <laughs> course, anything with dogs always will. Right. <laughs> All right. Any case. So on to my usual first question. Um, I'm going to take you back before we talk about all this great stuff that you're doing now to when you were a little girl growing up, eight, 10, 12 years old, maybe, what did you want to be? Because my guess is, uh, uh, you know, business brokerage, uh, what you're doing now probably wasn't on the list back then, but, uh, you tell me. No, no, it actually, no, it wasn't at all. So I grew up um, in a small town in Southern New Jersey on a horse farm. So I wanted to be a large animal vet veterinarian. And that was my dream until I was about 14 years old. And my horse at the time had to go in for surgery. And I saw my first drop of blood and it was fainted. And I was like, okay, this is not going to (laughs) work. But yeah, for the very first 14 years, I wanted to be a large animal vet. Cross that one off the list, right? Yeah, yeah. Who was it? Do you? Uh, I don't know. I, I have all these animal asides uh, that are coming into my mind because there was a there was an author I used to read a lot of bo- who was like a large animal vet and used to write books on, um, you know, on like had stories about uh, about that. It was a phenomenal. He was a phenomenal. I I don't, I don't know. I didn't read it, but like, fortunately, like where I grew up, the university of Pennsylvania has like one of the top large animal veterinarian schools in the country. So I used to, my trainer used to take me there and I got exposed to all this stuff, which also, like I said, showed me that I could not complete that task because I don't like the sight of blood. So (laughs) well, it's the same with me. My mother's, my mother's, she's retired many years now, but um, she was a critical care and intensive care unit nurse. And I used to hate, like if I had to go pick up the car keys when I was a teenager from her or whatever, I used to hate going into, into hospitals. I didn't know how she did that that work. Um, all right. One other question looking back. Um, we said in your bio that, you know, your first company was when you were 25. Do you remember, it could be something small when you were a kid or later, whatever, whatever comes to mind. Do you remember what your first deal of any type was? Hmm. Yeah, I was, I was thinking about this question because I know this is one of your opening questions and I, I can't like I was trying to think about it. I can't really remember my first deal, but actually my first job was in sales. Right. So I was thinking about like all those deals I was close was sales. I was closing were actually or deals. They were transactional, um, but I was a telemarketer for our local gym in our community. And okay. I started that when I was like 14 years old. And so and I actually I was fairly good at it. It scared the hell out of me, but like, I was very good at it. So I was able to close uh, a few 
few memberships before they moved me into more of a service role. But that was like my first real job in, in sales or positioning myself yeah. in that area. Yeah, yeah. got it. And, and listen, although we do make the distinction between sales and, 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 you know, and deals, you know, some of the skills that you learn, you know, in, in, in one relate, you know, relate to the other, right. You know, understanding what the other party wants and be able to present something powerfully and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So uh, yeah, it's interesting. I, I've actually done some health club gym deals in my, in my career. Um, uh, you know, uh, and um, I remember when the model changed uh, from uh, annual renewals to the monthly recurring, um, you know, uh, uh, which um, a lot of people thought that that was a stupid play because why are you letting people get out on 30 days notice when you can lock it, when you used to lock them in for a year? And uh, the, the, the health club industry understood something relatively early on that's become ubiquitous now, which yeah. is that recurring revenue, subscription revenue is worth a lot more. And yeah. actually, I think, I think especially in the health club industry, they have a, a built-in advantage because if you don't have to actively renew, you have to admit to yourself, you're never going to go to the gym again and you don't want to do that. So you keep paying. Right. Um, But, but from a, from a, you know, in the context of deals from an enterprise value point of view, they've also made, you know, their businesses more valuable because they had guaranteed recurring revenue, not only for a year, but for, you know, you know, forever in in theory. So uh, yeah. Yeah. It was an interesting movie. If you think about it too, could have even reduced their overhead. Like the gym I worked at when we were at annual renewals, we actually have a sales team, right to do all those annual renewals and moving to monthly recurring revenue, especially with technology, you don't really need the sales team anymore. Right. Yeah. And it's amazing. You know, like you think about it and I've talked to some folks, uh, I think I, I, we had Joel block on um, his second, the second time we had Joel on, which was, I don't know, a couple of months ago. Um, he talked about, he does this trend report and he talked about, you know, how, you know, it's just a continuing trend to subscription, you know, revenue. I mean, you know, how many subscriptions, like I have, I don't even know what subscriptions I have, right? I, I don't think I want to know how many subscriptions <laughs> right, exactly. I have. I know my husband doesn't want to know how many subscriptions <laughs> I have. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but you know that's that's become such such a model, and you know, and it and it definitely uh, helps. Uh, I'm sure that you know, you see that on the deal side as well in terms of the enterprise value. Definitely, know. definitely. Number one thing that buyers request at this point, right, is yep. what is the recurring revenue in the business? Yep, totally. So let's start. So before we get into, uh, you know, what you're doing now, before you got into uh, the brokerage side, helping other people buy and sell businesses, you had some of your own businesses that actually, you know, did some deals on your own. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your personal history with starting and, and, and positioning companies for sale and selling them and, and, you know, what went well and maybe some lessons you learned. Yeah. Yeah. So it was interesting. Um, it was, I started my first business in the middle of the recession, 2009, and my husband and I were both laid off from our jobs, thought we were given an opportunity when we were young, had low overhead to, to do what we wanted to do. Sure. And we, we kind of looked around the marketplace and we had a few friends that made some good money in the wine industry. And we're like, hmm, if we can make good money in the wine industry and drink wine all day, that sounds great. Um, so we opened a, a boutique wine shop and tasting bar in Naples, Florida, Okay. And yeah, and, and actually it was, it was perfect timing. Like you hear all the time, it's, it's a great time to start businesses in a recession or a down market. Okay. So yeah, we were very uh, quickly able to get into luxury wine dealing. So not just like, you know, the yellow tail that you'll see at total wine, but we were selling bottles up to, you know, I think our most expensive bottle we ever sold was $25,000 a bottle. Nice. Um, so it was a great business. Um, we did really well at it, but it, it also, we hit it at the right 
perfect time um, before this guy named that everybody knows, Gary V, um, really blew up <laughs> in the market. And online wine buying had become like a thing. And that, and when that happened and there was online sales, it just started crushing the margins. So we made the decision at that time to sell and also relocate to Colorado. It was a personal decision. And it was interesting because I, I like asked my advisors, I asked my CPA, my accountants, and, and we were in a relatively small market in Florida, yeah. right? Southwest Florida. And they're like, so how do I sell a business like this? And they're like, I don't really know. Like, and then my next question was like, do you, do you have a broker, an investment banker, right? That can help me. And then there was only one guy, right? So there was one guy that was selling businesses at the time in Naples. And so we went through that brokerage process and we're able to sell our business. I look back down, I'm like, that was a great deal. We had it done in 60 days, all cash, um, you know, only two weeks training and transition. So wow. like, and now I look at the deal and I'm like, wow, that was an easy <laughs> you didn't realize how, good, how good you had it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we did most of it ourselves. Like our, our broker wasn't that engaged and it, it really taught me a lot about the process because yeah. I handled due diligence on my own, uh, worked super closely with our attorney. And that's what opened my eyes into this, this whole other industry I didn't even know existed. I say a lot, like you, you see a lot of coaching programs and even, you know, through university and stuff, you've, you're taught a lot about how to start a business, how to grow a business, but this like third leg of the journey of how to exit, or, you know, how you talk about even growing through acquisition and deals, nobody really talks about that. Yeah. Um, so I just became intrigued in the whole process. And um, after we sold that business and a couple of our other holdings in the wine industry, we were able to start our business brokerage firm in Colorado. Yeah. So I, and I want to go there, but before we go there, you know, it, yeah. it triggers a few things uh, to me, um, which are interesting. You know, it, it's funny you say that, you know, nobody teaches you, you know, about the exit. It's true. The, the only situation where you hear it and maybe you, you, you take some classes in school and learn about it, whatever, you know, is funded companies, right. Who are going to, you know, exit by IPO or maybe by acquisition, you know, they go throughout, you know, like you'll hear it in that context, but, but, you know, any, any company that's not, you know, raising significant capital is going to be some, you know, try to be some unicorn, you know, you, right. I mean, you know, you, you don't hear about that. And, um, and it's, it's amazing because it is, could be the single biggest, biggest asset that, a, that, a, um, you know, and often is that an entrepreneur has. Um, and, you know, we're not taught how to create enterprise value, you know, uh, very often. I mean, we're so busy trying to figure out how to run the thing and keep it going and make payroll and, you know, and make some money for ourselves. Right. So, um, so it's interesting. One other point, uh, uh, the wine business made me remember you're in those industries where I've done deals, but that's probably because I've done deals in almost, you know, in the industry, but um, a little shout out to my good buddy, uh, John DeQuilla. Um, John is, is actually an accountant down in Florida. Mm-hmm. Uh, now he, he's a New York guy originally, which is how I, I knew him with, there's a great story. I will not tell in detail right now, but we were actually introduced by a guy because he thought we looked like we could be brothers. That, that was the context <laughs> in which we got introduced. Was the introduction. <laughs> and we ended up, we ended up becoming great friends. And uh, John was over at Comstock, which was one of the top stock, stock photography companies back in the day before Getty took everything over or whatever. And we did a deal to sell, to sell them to Jupiter Media for I don't know, 22, 23 million. I can say that because it was a public, the buy was public. So it was all public information. Yeah. Um, and John had exited and become a, a consultant from that company. He wasn't the owner there. Um, but, uh, but he had started a business and this is back. Uh, I don't know. I could be way off, but it's got to be 20 years ago. He had started a business in the wine business, 
Um, and um, he was one of the early online wine companies. And that was his whole concept. He was going to go online with wine. It was going to be, you know, it was early in the internet. There weren't many people who were doing that. Um, and the funny thing is that he called me up. And he said, hey, Corey, I need you to come with me to the hearing at the liquor board. Mm. Um, and I'm like, John, what are you talking about? I don't do that. I, you know, I don't do that kind of work. I'm, I'm a deal guy, right? Yeah. He's not nah, nah, just come with me. He says, you know, it should be, it should be a problem. Um, he said, you know, in, in New York State at the time, there was a law and there's all kinds of liquor laws around the country that are crazy. Right. Uh, you know, um, he could not start an online business at that time without having a physical location. Yeah. But it was required for him to have a physical location. So he took a storefront in, I think it was Harrison, New York, or somewhere in Westchester, whatever. And, uh, and, and he only took it to have, be able to have the online business. Well, the, some of the local, you know, uh, liquor stores objected to, to his license because they thought it'd be competition. We ended up going up to this hearing. <laughs> went with them. We explained to them how it's going to be an online play. We're not going to be competitive with any of these folks. We're only going to be doing wine. We're not going to be doing liquor. It's going to be whatever. And, you know, got approved. My one and only time appearing before the liquor board. <laughs> and, and John built this thing into an online thing. The funny part is, I feel a little bit about this, but it wasn't intentional, is that the other two stores ended up going out of business because John's retail business oh. just... Just like, you know, because he understood how to do it right, and, you know, and, and it wasn't even his intention. But, uh, but, the, but, but the funny part is when he came to me to sell that company and he ended up selling it, he said, you know, everything looked good. It was a good deal, whatever. I, and I, he said, you know, you have any caveats to me? I said, yeah, you're crazy. Why would you sell this company? You get to go on free trips to Italy and to France and to, you know, Chile and to, you know, all these places you know, to taste wine. Like, what? I don't care how much money you're getting. Why, why, why are you selling this thing? Yeah. Yeah, it was funny. We actually, when I sold, I, you know, and my friends made fun of me and I'm like, I'm just, you know, I'm so over just tasting wine all day. And, and we, we sold a lot out of California. So like we're in Napa all the time. And like, I was complaining about it. Um, but it does get tiring. Right. And yeah. There's, there's a real thing of palate fatigue and not wanting to drink wine at 10 a.m. at 10 a.m. in the morning, no matter like, you know, how many points it has. So yeah. No, no, I, I hear you. That's real. Although I'm sure your friends were like, oh yeah, tough life. I know that's, yeah, that's pretty much <laughs> what we got, but it, it was the right move for us. It was, it was fun. Um, while we had it, I still know way too much about wine. Um, so that's always like, you know, it's always the, I'm always the friend at dinner where like the wine menu comes and it gets passed to me. So that'll yeah, be a lifelong responsibility. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Me too. In fact, the rare times that I'm out with like my buddy, John, or I've got a, a friend, uh, uh, Vito, who's, who actually has a, a vineyard down in uh, Temecula, that is just about to, you know, it takes a few years. So you want to play, you know, and, um, you know, it, I, like those are the rare times where I will, you know, re- relinquish the wine list duties, you know, and I'm actually happy to have somebody else pick a bottle so much. Yeah. Um, all right. Any case. So yes. getting back to deals. Um, uh, so, so, all right. So it's interesting because you sort of um, previewed a little bit. If people listened closely to your, to your comments about your experience with the one business broker, in, you know, uh, in Naples and the experience you had doing your own due diligence and, you know, whatever. Um, so yeah, talk to me about now involve, evolving into the business brokerage side. Um, you know, and I will say, uh, that, you know, one of the chat, you know, and I'll, I'll sort of throw yourself while I'm setting it up because my experience, you know, one of the challenges, I mean, to find quality, you know, anything below the, the big deal investment banking level to find quality, um, advice and, you know, and, and professionals 
on what are considered smaller middle market deals is, you know, is a challenge. Um, so, um, yeah, so, so take us through what you're doing now uh, and, you know, sort of what brought you there and what you learned in that process of selling uh, the wine business and how you apply that to the to what you do now. Yeah, it was a softball question. I appreciate it. Um, but no, what I really learned through the process of selling our business and then when we we're doing some market research and, and investigating the business brokerage market, which to us really like we we kept out around like 20 million in transactional value. So anything below 20 million is what we handle. But what I saw is that when you go to sell a business through a business broker versus where you go to sell a business through an investment banker, it's a very similar process, but you get a very different experience. And so what I was really inspired to do is like, how can we bring investment banking resources, advice, professionalism down to some of these smaller deals? Because kind of what you said, Corey, is that, you know, when you sell a business, almost any business you sell is going to be that owner's one of their biggest financial assets that they part with in their lifetime. And what I found is even on the smaller deals, sometimes that's even more relevant, right? So a lot of our clients, um, that we're, we're dealing with, they've, they've spent a lot of their money, time investment in their business, and this is their retirement, right? This is their one shot. And I, I really felt like that was so important and we had to handle it with so much care, but we weren't seeing that in our competitors. Now I have to say like, this is back. We started in 2013, the markets evolved, all that kind of stuff. But that was really where I started from is, is how do we deliver investment banking level services for a small business? And that was really what led to our inspiration, how we've built our team. Um, We've built more of like a, a team format. So instead of just having like solo brokers floating around, we have a whole back office staff, fire reps, um, resources, like attorneys like yourself that we're partnering, partnering with, but it really started there. Um, and it was, it was primarily driven by my primary experience, my own personal experience through the deal. Yeah. And, and, you know, and and that's fascinating. So, I mean, not not to ask you to give away any secret sauce or whatever, uh, but, um, you know, but, but, you know, the, the word on why it's difficult to get that level of service and professionalism, et cetera, on the smaller deal level is that it's not as lucrative, right? I mean, obviously, right. if you're taking a percentage of a much, you know, a $200 million deal versus a $20 million deal, you know, it's a, it's a much bigger number, although in practice, usually the percentages do scale down, but still, you're getting, you're still getting a piece of the bigger numbers, you know, so, so, you know, how does, so that's been the challenge, right? So how does yep. one truly professionalize at a smaller deal level and have it be, success. I mean, you're very successful, you, you know, your business is profitable, you make, you know, um, you know, so again, without secret sauce, like how do you, how do you do that? In a yeah. Way that makes sense. I mean, yeah. And I mean, it's really, it's a lot of the stuff like uh, we're taught through entrepreneurs organization too. Right. Um, but we have to be a very process oriented business. Yes. Um, and we do a lot more, we do a lot more deals than investment bankers would do. So yeah. um, last year we closed close to a hundred deals wow. and, you know, over a, a, just about 22 brokers. Right. So, but in order to do that kind of scale, like we have to have a lot of processes and systems. Um, That's not to say like every person that we deal with or every business isn't treated like a client and haven't given like a customary experience, but in our back office, we're very process oriented. Like how we list deals for sale? What's our marketing strategy? How do we go to market? And then the back office side of us having like an actual back office admin team that's providing a lot of the support to the brokers allows them to do more deals, right? Um, and actually as an entrepreneur, I kind of like that, right? It, when I look at 
Um, and you know that, know this, but deals can blow up at any time for any reason, for any number of reasons. Oh, yeah. um, and in the deal world, we really don't get paid until the deal closes, or at least we don't get the bulk of our, our paycheck till the deal closes. So if, if we're spreading the risk out over those deals, over a hundred deals versus 10 or 15, um, it's actually better for the, as a business model for us, at least that we're, we're, our risk is more diversified. So now when, when you started doing the business brokerage, was it, did you start being a franchisee of Transworld uh, business advisors? Yeah, we, yeah, we actually did. Okay. So there was a, there was a defunct office in Colorado, um, yeah. specifically in downtown Denver. So we acquired that one office and then we grew by acquisition. So we started with one franchise location. We grew by acquisition, buying out other franchise owners in Colorado. Yeah. Um, and then in uh, 2020, we actually expanded to both Dallas and Vegas through acquisition as well. Right. But yeah, we were introduced to Transworld. That was not the broker we sold through when we sold yeah. our, our company, but um, the, the CEO, Andy Cagnetta, it was funny. We grew up in a similar town in South Jersey. We had the East coast thing going on. <laughs> we really agreed where the direction that we thought that the industry was going. And for us, it was a win-win there. You see a lot in the deal world too. Now that, you know, to get deals done, especially in our size, efficiently process oriented, you have to have a big buyer database. You have to have like a really big pool of resources and yep. working together with other offices ac- across the country has been way more beneficial to us than trying to go it alone in our small markets. Yeah, it totally makes sense. And some of that back office support you providing, is that provided at the franchise or level or that's what I, that's what I yeah. think, because obviously they, because of the scale that they have with the, with the franchisees, they, they, you know, they can, they can, you know, it's easy to systemize then. I mean, obviously you've grown significantly through acquisitions. You've gotten to a level of scale yourself, but certainly in the beginning and for some of the other franchisees who I'm sure are smaller than you, um, you know, it would be difficult for them probably to create the level of systems that you benefit from if not being part of the franchise system. Yeah. So definitely, I mean, it definitely has uh, helped us a lot. It helps smaller offices. It helps us scale faster. You know, we're, we're in our ninth year now, and I I don't think we would be at this place if we had started a solo practice on our own. Um, We just grew a lot faster because of the support and the back office systems that the franchise had in place and also the expertise, right? So we've over 600 brokers in our network. I have somebody that I can call that's an expert in every single industry. Right. Right. So we get, we got a deal today. Um, it's something to do with like, um, gas distribution, but like not oil and gas, like helium and hydrogen. Right. Okay. Don't run into those quite often, but I'm sure there's someone in my network that's done a deal like that before. Right. 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 Which is an amazing resource. That's yeah, that's phenomenal. Um, so, uh, you know, and it's interesting because, you have, you know, you say that they've helped you grow. They've helped, you know, and it's been in two ways, right? Number one is organic growth, right? You know, by mm-hmm. being part of a system of marketing and getting, you, I'm sure they help get clients. But then also you said you've done a number of deals and they've all been within the franchise system, right? So, you know, they've also, you know, you've had those connections and be able to acquire existing uh, franchises in, in, in Colorado and in other locations, right? Yeah, it's it's interesting too. And and as we became this more larger franchisee, we got introduced to other other entrepreneurs that have a similar strategy. I have a friend that does um, this strategy in my Nike brands, right? And it, it's interesting because once you understand how to operate, not just you know one industry, but you know a business within that industry, and then you have a built-in network. Um, there's deal flow that comes to you. And, um, if you're lucky enough to rise to the top of the the franchise performers too, those, those deals come to you, um, for, 
usually starts as like advice, right? But there could come opportunities there to expand as well. We've tried to be really thoughtful and going into markets we thought were developing and growing, but also markets we like to be in. I mean, at the end of the day, if we're working with small business owners, we've got to have some face-to-face time, even in this day and age. Um, So we've been personally strategic like that too, is like, let's go to a market we like to travel to and be in um, and not just pick some random market we're never going to go to. So totally makes sense. And did, did, you said Dallas, Dallas. Yeah. So we're in and, Dallas yeah. and Fort Worth. Yep. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, it's interesting to me because I had um, traveled to Dallas forever ago on business in the eighties and all this kind of stuff, whatever. And then I hadn't been to Dallas for like, I don't know, 15, 20 years or something. And then about maybe eight, 10 years ago, I went back and then, somehow found myself there a lot for a period of years. You know how that happens sometimes where you just, you know, um, and I was amazed like Dallas totally had, I mean, you know, I mean, I know a lot of areas change, develop, whatever, but you know, when you haven't been there for a while um, and the, the, I remember I went out there for the first time because we had good friends from New York who were, so my wife comes out, although my wife's an entrepreneur now and runs a, a very successful um, coaching and training company for socially conscious entrepreneurs um, does occasionally. Um, and we have a lot of friends in the arts and, um, and we had some like real sort of New York, um, you know, uh, folks who came out of, um, you know, hip hop and hip hop theater festival and things like this or whatever, uh, who were moving to Dallas. And we yeah. were like, and it was sort of like a disconnect for me. And it was my own issue with not, you know, sort of having a, a perception, right. Of Dallas. Uh, and, you know, that, I mean, they built, uh, you know, the whole downtown arts, you know, uh, area, all kinds of money went into that. They really uh, actively uh, pursued diverse, uh, you know, drawing diverse folks to the various universities and to the theater companies and to, you know, that kind of stuff. So, yeah, it's really interesting, you know, and you, I'm sure know more than I do on the business side. But, uh, and, you know, and there's certainly money there, that's for sure. So, um, you know, it's been interesting for me to see personally at least how, how Dallas has evolved. Yeah. It's, it's a really interesting market. And like, look, there's, there's a lot of people, um, and businesses moving to Texas for like financial reasons, for tax reasons, whatever. But what's interesting to me about it as a market is it's also, and and Colorado was able to do this too. And I see a lot of, um, similarities between the two markets. It Dallas has also been able to maintain its, um, small business mindset, right? Mm -hmm. So there's still tons of small businesses there, a, a great community, great entrepreneurial community. So you've got, yeah, you've got the, the flash of downtown and all the money that's influxing, but the city as its backbone is still a very small business entrepreneurial um, based community, which is what I love about it. Um, you know, we talked about, that's like part of my passion is it's our target market, but it's also what I love to be in. It's the community I want to be part of. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, it's, listen, I, you know, uh, we, we both, uh, you know, we talked about the entrepreneurial organization and it's like, yeah, it's my people. I and mean, that's who my clients are as well. Yep. Right. It's the same thing, you know, so yeah, I love hanging out with entrepreneurs, people who are building something and, you know, and, 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 you know, people who are, who are founders. I mean, listen, I have some bigger clients, we deal with their executives, you know, whatever. I love that too. Appreciate them. But, you know, there's something about that entrepreneurial energy um, and vision and, you know, and, you know, certainly helping them grow and helping them exit is, uh, you know, is fun because I always say it's not, you know, it's, it, it affects where they live, where the kids go to college and how they retire and, and what causes they can support with the, you know, with, with the money they have and, you know, all this stuff that is like real, you know? Yeah. 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 Very real. Yeah. Good stuff. 
Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreycupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreycupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. So let's talk about the market generally. I mean, uh, you know, uh, the experience in, you know, in the areas that we deal in is that, you know, there's a ridiculous amount of capital out there. Deal feels crazy right now, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You and I both talked before we went on air about how busy we both are. Um, talk to us generally about what you're seeing. And then also maybe because you are in a few different markets, you know, uh, do you see differences in those, in those different geographies? Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. Like how I look at, um, the market for sale right now in small businesses, I, I, I call it the tale of two markets, right? So, um, part of our businesses, we do, we do a lot of restaurant retail brick and mortar, right? And we've got that market right now. That's really struggled, um, through the pandemic, different restrictions, you know, and, and they've been fortunate enough to get through that with some of the incentives we've seen come out through the federal and state government programs. Um, but when we can go to sell those businesses, it's, it's a very, it's a low multiple, right. And, and because of the performance over the last 18 months. So that's like, that's really a buyer's market, right? So there's tons of opportunity for buyers right now to pick up second locations, third locations, or even get into an industry, a very, very low um, entry point. Um, you know, especially restaurants, you know, you're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars to use it, build something out. And right now you can pick up a restaurant for $50,000, right? So it's crazy. So that's the one side of the market. And then the other side of the market is the businesses that, and the industries that were stable through the pandemic or even did well. And we've seen a lot of businesses that did well. And that's a seller's market, especially on some of our larger size deals. We've seen, um, you know, like you mentioned, Corey, there's a lot of money out there, right? So we've seen a lot of money chasing those deals and the sellers have a pick of a number of different offers. Um, it's also been an interesting place in the last 18 months that lending has been, I don't want to call it easy because it's never easy, right? <laughs> right. but lending's available, right? So yes. there's, there's so much money, whether it's on the private equity side or the debt side that a lot of these sellers are walking away with very significant chunks of cash in their pockets from the closing table, instead of doing a big portion of earnouts or seller financing. Yeah. Um, so it's really interesting because we're managing like the two opposite ends of the spectrum. Um, and it's, it's really, it's hard for us some days because it's very clear to us the winners and losers from this pandemic in terms of industry. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, listeners of, uh, you know, and, and viewers of deal costs are probably getting tired of me using this K economy, you know, phrase, but I really, it's exactly what you're describing and it's what I believe in, you know, that's one of the ways that they're, they're describing it where, you know, there are businesses that are on the upswing, you know, the upstroke of the K through the pandemic and some other downstroke. And, you know, you're right. I mean, restaurants and retail, you know, and I have some of those clients, you know, but my biggest two sectors, financial services and tech, are you kidding yes. me? I mean, they're, you know, they couldn't have been doing better, you know? Yeah. Um, so, you know, and then obviously you have stuff in between, but a lot of logistics companies did really well as well, you know? So um, yeah, it's really interesting. But, you know, it also shows one of the things that I always say, which is in any challenging time, any changing time, whatever, there's, there's always opportunities. It's just a matter of what side it's on. Right? Yeah. 
Yeah, you're exactly. at, you know, There are buyer opportunities, uh, you know, in some segments and there are seller opportunities in, in others, you know, which is kind of interesting. At this yeah. Time. And I mean, even, I'm sure you've seen this too, even within the industries too, um, like construction and trades are a big uh, segment of our business and they, and our markets have killed it. I mean, the, you can't even count the number of cranes, right. in these markets anymore. So, but it's, it's interesting too, because, um, you've really seen the operational differences in businesses. Cause we'll, you know, we could have one roofing company that's killing it and we have buyers knocking down the door for it. And then we could have the same exact business that was just managed differently. Yes. Um, and it's harder to sell. So yeah, that's right. Very, um, uh, what's the word, very, uh, um, you know, you're being a, an ambassador. You're very nice of you to call it managed differently. Yeah, yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm playing the party line. Yes, yeah. yeah. But um, I, in terms of your question of like different markets and stuff, yeah. we haven't seen like geographically that different. There's yeah. definitely some markets that are more active um, than others. And, and in, in our three, we're actually very fortunate that, you know, Colorado, Vegas and, and Dallas are very fast developing markets. Yep. Mainly, and it mainly goes back, it goes back to demographics too. They're all um, areas where we're having a net migration increase, right? So we're having yeah more people come in than leave right now. And that's the same for businesses. And I mean, that won't hold true forever. Right. But for right now, sitting in three markets that have that net positive migration is very helpful for our industry yeah. and, and for all business really in the community. Yeah. No, yeah. No question about it. And, you know, it's interesting. I want to sort of go back and you know, I joked a little bit about this uh, managed differently conversation. But, you know, but it really does. I mean, certainly on the uh, in the industries where it's where it's more challenging, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I had um, I, and I was it always bothers me. And I don't remember who this was, but many years ago, I, I was, went to some seminar and there were uh, like four billionaires being in, uh, interviewed about their journey. Right. And one of them, you know, and they all had, you know, had declared bankruptcy or they had this issue, whatever. And then and um, and, uh, you know, they asked one of the guys, you know, what, what was your biggest mistake? And. And, he's, and he said a quote, which I love, which is, he said, I, um, I mistook a bull market for brilliance, hmm. yeah. right? Which I thought was such a great line. And it's sort of the corollary of that is that, you know, as, an, you know, as a business owner, as an entrepreneur, it's easy. It's never, it's never easy to be successful. It's tough road entrepreneur. But let's say a good economy can cover up a lot of sins, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, uh, and, and when things get more challenging, a lot of times these, um, uh, you know, these, uh, these businesses like the, you know, the flaws, the, the excess expenses, the bad management, the, you know, uh, turnover of employees, whatever it is that is, you know, a challenge for them, which maybe they've been able to, you know, cover up by the fact that it's been a boom market, you know, start to really uh, show themselves. So, you know, I think uh, your point on uh, that it's not just by industry, but within industry is, is you know, is, is, is a really important one. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's, it's very important, you know, if you think about it in terms of the economy and how it's as an owner, it's going to affect your bottom line. But the other area I see this a lot in is in deals, right? So in deals and, you know, you've been through this way too many times, but when you get into due diligence, that's when all the warts come out. Right. And it doesn't matter if you're in a good economy, bad economy, the buyer really looks at, at, at how that operational structure um, is designed. And, and a lot of people ask me like, well, how, how do I increase the valuation of my business? How do I get more money? And, and there is a quantitative factor, right? You make more money, your EBITDA is higher, you get a higher valuation, but there's also like this qualitative factor. And we talked a little bit about recurring revenue and how that's valued, but 
it's also like the quality of the business and, and the operationals and, and more and more. And I think this is because, you know, we're not as in a stable economy as we were a few years ago, we get questions from buyers, like how did the owner handle the pandemic? How did the owner handle the 2008 through 2010 crisis? Right? Like we want to see, um, and it's not just buyers, it's bankers and financiers too, which is, you gotta, you gotta impress the money guys too. Right. (laughs) So yeah. But I see that a lot in due diligence is that's where, you know, the playing field is equaled and, and it really, that's, that's where the investigation investigation begins about how the company is run. Yeah. Yeah. That's super important. I mean, you know, one of the things I talk about sometimes as well is that it's, it's actually actual due diligence, but there's also, you know, perception, right. Right. Um, and so the way you present yourself makes a big difference. If you seem like you're on top of stuff, things are organized, you know, you know, you're not missing the denims to your contracts. You, you, you know, you're not, you can't, you know, you know, um, because, you know, one of the things I try to explain to my clients sometimes is that you have to understand sometimes, you know, depending on who the buyer is, right. Usually there, there are people that come in internal folks, financial folks, you know, legal folks, um, operational folks who come in and they're employees, right. Of the buyer. Right. Yep. And, and, you know, it, it may be the, the, you know, the, the, the founder or the board or the executives who decided to do this, but the people who come in and doing the due diligence are folks that are looking for problems mm-hmm. because they have more risk. If they actually have less risk, if the deal doesn't go through, right. they have more risk if the deal goes through and they miss something, right. Or there's a problem right. that comes up afterwards. That's when their job is on the line. That's when they're going to look bad. Right. Yeah. So you got to understand the mentality of some of the folks doing the due diligence. So you want to, you know, you want to make them feel comfortable. So I always take, and I'm sure you, you know, you work with your clients as well. You know, I take, I take my clients through a pre-due diligence process, you know, right. and any good broker banker is going to, you know, I work with them to do the same thing, right? Because you want to sort of take them through the process that they're going to go through so that when it comes down to the actual due diligence, you've caught everything. That's, you know, yeah, that's an issue, right? Yeah. I mean, the buyers, like we always say, like, just to your point, the buyer's looking for red, red flags, right? It might not necessarily about like this red flag, right? But it's like a what else thing. Um, one of the stories I tell a lot that's just like funny, but simplistic, we were selling a manufacturing company, great company, like really everything was buttoned down. Their books and records look good. Great. But the first, so the first tour with the buyer, we're driving up to their facility and we know we pull down the driveway and there's like an old washer to one side. There's like, you know, a dryer to the other side. And we get up to the front door and there's like a, a commercial kitchen sink right outside the front door. And the buyer's like, Oh no, I don't think I can do this. Right. And it's like, you know, like I said, it was a great company, stable, long-term, like 20, 30 years in business. But the perception was like, they yeah. literally have their trash in their front yard. Like what else is wrong in the business? Is that yeah. one red flag? that starts to spark those questions and like, what other risks do I have? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Where there's smoke, they think there's fire. Right. You right. Know, so, yeah. Yeah. No, so the lesson of that story is, you know, remove your commercial sinks from your front door before you stop. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Or whatever the, whatever, whatever the, the, uh, the, the equivalent of that is right. That could right. be, yep. that could be messy financials. That could be, uh, right. you know, not having signed renewals on your contracts. That could be, you know, <laughs> all kinds of numbers of things. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. 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 Um, what, let's talk a little bit about, because, you know, it's, it's easy to also think that deals are all about numbers or even due diligence, you know, legal financial due diligence. Let's talk a little bit about personality. Let's talk about 
entrepreneurs. Let's talk about ego. Let's talk about some of that stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like what, what do you find? Like, you know, what gets in the way of deals sometimes, you know, and, and, and uh, you know, my guess is um, uh, knowing what you do, you know, you like I are, and I don't mean this truly in a professional license way, but you know, you're half a therapist, you know, yeah. sometimes as well. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's super interesting because I think by nature of a deal, you're in a room with a lot of egos, right? A lot of business owners and entrepreneurs um, have large egos or like I, I, we use the disc scale a lot. Like they're high D's, like they're demanding personalities and that's what's gotten them to the, the level of success that that's been there. Right. And then you have the same on the buy side, right? Because you have somebody coming in, whether they're an experienced buyer or not, they have somebody, someone coming in that feels that they can take the business to the next level. And they're going to see, like we talked about all the warts and how to take advantage of these warts and the opportunity and all of that stuff. Um, so we do a lot of coaching with our clients, but one thing like I think is really important to communicate, especially on the sell side, right? Um, because the, the buyer does point out a lot of different things that could be done differently and better, right? And sometimes the sellers take that a little bit too personally. So we always say you can either be right or you can get what you want. And we explained that it was like, you know, you don't have to be right in every single conversation, every single negotiation. Um, if you want to get what you want, which is out of the business, it's the same thing for the buyer. Right. But it, it is, I think that's the hardest part of our job is balancing the personalities and the culture. I, I mean, I do have to say there are deals that do not go through and should not go through because of personality and culture yes. differences. I mean, you know, these are short-term marriages, there are long deal processes. There's usually a transition process. So like people, the people actually do have to get along to move the business from one hand to another. Yeah. Yeah. No, no question about it. You know, that's always the interesting and, and sometimes, you know, <laughs> challenging, uh, right. Part, part of what, what we do often. Um, okay. So before I ask you my final two questions, um, uh, just, you know, and I know this is, to the high level, but um, give me two or three uh, sort of biggest mistakes people make, you know, in deals and, and, uh, and, and, or two or three, I don't know if you want to do both or the other side of it, like best practices. Yeah. Um, I think they're kind of tied together. So like my first one is so boring. Um, and I, I always hate that this is my first one, but it's financials and financial cleanliness. So the biggest mistakes I would be I really think it's not understanding the importance of the financial records going into a deal process. And this is both on the buyer, the sell side, right? Because your financials are going to be investigated on the sell side um, by the buyer, the financiers, things like that. And on the buy side, if you're trying to get money, you're trying to raise money, you're trying to borrow money, it's the same thing. Um, and, and I do believe you know, deals start with books and records and they end with books and records. Okay. So that's like my, my, um, caution tale. The, the easy way to do it is like, you know, just make sure you're work, working with your bookkeepers and your accountants to make sure all your books and records are tied together, at least for the last three years, yep. um, or however long you've been in business. If it's been less th the last three, um, the other thing, and I see this a lot is that, and this goes back to your ego question, right? Is that no one wants to see that a business is tied to the individual owner, right? When somebody yep. comes and say they wanted to buy my business, they, they don't want the risk that everyone's just doing business with Transworld because they like Jess, right? It, it just goes away eventually. And that's a really scary situation. And I see sometimes that 
owners actually overplay the importance of their role in the business. Um, this comes down to even like things like the pre-due diligence checklist you're talking about. Like we do things like, what does your about us section look like on your webpage? Right. Is it like, you know, is it about just, 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 or is it about the team? Right. And about the business. And, and so I think the more you can downplay your ownership role in preparation for a sale, and it's, it's good messaging for buyers too, right? Because we talked about buyers coming with some of that ego too. Think about like, how do you position yourself in that company? So you're not going to put yourself in that same pigeonholed role that the company is based on you in preparation for your future exit, which will happen at some point in your life, you know? No, so yeah, those no are my two, two biggest things. If, if people are like, Hey, what can I do today? Um, I'll give one on the buy side too. And it was funny. I was listening to one of your solo casts, um, yeah. your top, you're, you're going through your top five. There's gonna be top 10 things. If you're thinking about acquisition and one thing that I totally agree with you on. And I, I tell all of our buyers is be very specific on what you're looking for. Right. So why are you looking for a company? Who are you targeting? You know, what are you targeting and where, um, because we had a lot of buyers that come to us and they say, Hey, I'm just looking for a good profitable company that's growing. And I'm like, I don't know where to go with that. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, um, there is, I mean, it's not a large market, but there's thousands of businesses for sale at any given moment on the market. That's just on like listed for sale. And there's other opportunities obviously that are unlisted. Um, so the more specific you can be, I think you can, you can really fast track your timeline to acquisition. Um, and, and, reduce your time waste too, and vetting through deals that just aren't going to be a fit. Yeah. 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 Which is, which is a big thing because listen, we, we both know, especially for companies that are, and listen, we, you know, we have some clients that do a lot of acquisitions and they have team and they have systems and they have, you know, but, but for certainly for buyers who are, uh, and even for, and for sellers, I mean, it could be such a distraction to your core business, um, you know, dealing with potential deals and when they don't go through, uh, you know, uh, I mean, I've seen businesses make the mistake of uh, actually hurting their, their business while going through that process and then becoming less valuable, right? Because, you know, so that's that's a challenge. Yeah, it's a challenge. I mean, we we just closed on another acquisition in Dallas-Fort Worth. Um, and I'm fortunate at this point, like that's, you know, besides doing podcasts and hanging out with cool people like you, that's like my main <laughs> role right now. But I just spent the last 60 days exclusively working on that deal, right? That was my full-time job for 60 days. So it, it does, and it wasn't a big deal but it's still, it's a lot of work, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's great. That's great. Okay. So I could talk to you forever. We could talk deals for hours yeah. and hours, but, but uh, I don't run a, th- I don't have a three hour podcast. So we're going <laughs> to, uh, before I um, ask you my final question, I, I know that people are going to want to know more about you and what you do. So what's the best place for them to go to get more information? Yeah. You can go to my website, which is jessicafiakovich.com. It's F I A L K. O V I C H that'll take you to my trans role business exit factor, my social media profiles. I'm most active on LinkedIn. If anyone's looking for me on social. Love it. You know what? I said, it was, I lied. It's not because we haven't talked to just give a few sentences on exit factor. Cause I mentioned it in the bio, but yep. we didn't talk about it. I want to give you an opportunity to tell us what. Oh yeah. Is. Thank you. Yeah. So exit factor, we developed, um, after we, we just saw a lot of people that weren't educated, like I, going back to the first part of like, you never have this education. Um, so exit factor is an educational and training company. So on the sell side, our primary, pr- primary course offering and consulting offering is called prep to sell. 
and it gets business owners ready to sell their business in one to two years, um, increasing the value of the business and the likelihood it will sell. And then on the buy side, we have a business buying 101 course. So it's six weeks. It's like a bootcamp version, but if you've never bought a business before, we walk through everything about like how to search for deals, what professionals you need, how to value businesses, where to get money, all that kind of stuff. Love it. So I'm glad, I'm glad I asked you that question because that's such a great resource for people. You know, I mean, it's, it's sort of, you know, along the same lines of why I even do this podcast, just to get information out there for folks who, you know, haven't done deals and want to, you know, want to learn how to do them, whether it's buy side, sell side, and just get, you know, get a feel for it. So I appreciate you providing that resource to the market. It's well, it's well needed. Thank you. So my, you're welcome. So my final question, um, as, uh, you uh, must know because you listen to some episodes is uh, freedom is my, uh, is my highest ideal in life. And that's everything from freedom from oppression from all people around the world to the reason I'm an entrepreneur and I haven't had a boss in 30 years. Um, So uh, what does freedom mean to you and how does it apply in your life and business? Yeah. um, Freedom is one of my big personal core values. That's probably why we get along so well. I don't think (laughs) I could ever go back and work for somebody else. Um, You know, on, like a very, I'd say joking perspective. Like when, when I look at freedom for me, it's my ability to go to as many Bruce Springsteen shows as I possibly can (laughs) and still work, but yeah, but, but really my, my definition of freedom is being able to work when I want, where I want and doing what I want. Um, so that's, that's how I've designed my life, my company. Now, obviously we have commitments and things like that. We all do. Um, but as long as I can stay in that box where I'm feeling like I'm doing what I want and when I want and where I want it, I'm happy. I love it. I love and going it. to as many Springsteen shows as I can. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you have that other metric, you know, I mean, for me, because, uh, because I, I, you know, I feel the same way, right. I want to work with who I want to work with. I want to do it. But my, my sort of, you know, uh, ultimate one, right. Which I have not quite achieved yet is like my ultimate freedom would be never to have to set an alarm again. Well, yeah, that's and a good by one. the way, I'm not one of these people who automatically wakes up. I know there are people like that who wake up 6 a.m. every day. They don't need an alarm. I'm not talking about you people. I'm yep. talking about people like me who actually, need, you know, use an alarm to wake up. Like if I never had to set an alarm again in my life, that would be like, you know, and it doesn't mean I wouldn't be working. I, you know, I just would be totally working whenever I want. <laughs> I know. Yeah. One of my idols is, um, is a family friend. He's a cardiologist. And he just speaks and teaches now. And when Bruce tours, he schedules all of his speeches around the tour schedule. And he hits almost all of the North American shows. And I was like, that, that is, that's freedom to me. Right. I love it. I <laughs> yeah. love it. Oh, what a good yeah. And Jessica, thank you so much for being an amazing guest on the Field Quest podcast. Thank you for having me, Corey. I lo- really enjoyed being here. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Deal Quest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the Deal Quest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.